Welcome to <clears throat> Nahagio's Nose. Oh my gosh, I am still sick. I I think I think what's actually going on is I, I was sick and I had like the fever and like the aching body and all that kind of stuff. But I still kind of have the chest. I have the leftovers from being sick. You know, my head doesn't ache anymore. My body doesn't hurt anymore. It's just all like the phlegm that's still left and it's still there and I'm not not enjoying it. <clears throat> and so you're going to hear that, that sound all throughout the, uh, all throughout the podcast, me clearing my voice, uh, turn the page when you hear, <coughs> no, that's not fun. I'm not like Tinkerbell. Anyways, we have moved our podcast dates for the next few weeks of Lent to on Sundays. We're going to be talking about, uh, any kind of particular saints, that are associated with um, each Sunday of Lent. And this Sunday, we're going to be talking about St. Theodora. But first off, I want to kind of do some... I want to talk about the last episode and just episodes before it. I think that uh, Sarah kind of called me out on it a little bit. She's like, it's the return of NPR Bill. And what that means is I was just being super boring. Um, and that's kind of funny because I'm not a boring person. Um... Not that that's a good quality necessarily. Sometimes I am. I could use some boredom uh, in my in my personal life. So the way I've been presenting this podcast, it's been very content heavy and very kind of low on my own personality, and that's been changing over the past you know few dozen episodes. But. I was reacting against something. I was like, if you remember in last week's episode, we talked about Eutychius and how he created a heresy by responding to a heresy. I was, I'm kind of responding to a thing in Catholic podcast or Catholic media, the Catholic media world that I really don't like. And it's how we try to make the things, the content of the faith into fads. We try to make them popular. I refer to this as doing a She's All That on Jesus. If you remember the 90s movie, She's All That. They're taking this n- nerdy girl, this kind of unconforming girl, and turning her into the popular prom queen. And I think that's what we're trying to do sometimes with the faith. So what I was trying to present was just a simple podcast with, you know, Catholic content and taking out a lot of my own personality out of it. And I realized that that's not a very good thing to do. That's kind of, it's kind of lame. It's kind of dishonest because I'm not a boring person to a fault. I'm not a boring person. And so I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to, I'm going to approach this with maybe a little more sincerity and a little more vulnerability. Isn't that a great word? All you charismatic folks out there, vulnerability, um, than I had before. Anyways, How's your Lent been going? My Lent has been, um, it's very obvious that it's Lent. Let's just say that. Considering we're only a few days in, it's rather presumptuous of me to say, but we, we start talking about certain things in the Divine Liturgy a few weeks ahead of time that prepare us for Lent, prepare us, you know, for, for the journey. And it feels like Lent starts then, and Lent is so much longer than what it is. I think it all started for me with the, with the Sunday of the Last Judgment. 
meditating on that image of that icon, if you ever seen it, if you can Google it right now, Google um, image of the la- uh, icon of the last judgment. And our tropars kind of conform with it. it. Talks about this big river of fire before the judgment seat of God, and it's like I was just picturing myself there. I was picturing myself before, before uh, being placed in that icon because there's no reason to think that we're not going to see anything except for that. Might even be, you know, more humbling than that. And it put a lot of things into perspective. So you're like, well, I was like harvesting all of these little different things in that liturgy that day. There was the tropars, there was the icon of the last judgment, and we even had a really great homily and it all kind of stuck with me since then and carried with me and just meditating on that image, hearing those words. And it's kind of like you get this bird's eye view of your own nonsense, your own silliness. And you realize that when you're in front of the judgment seat of God, are you going to want all these little frivolous things hanging over your head? The answer is likely no. And so I think it's one of those things that kind of inspired what I began with, that I need to take, it, take my pride down a notch and focus on being more vulnerable and more humble. Anyways... That's my, that's my diatribe. Let's begin with today's episode. So this Sunday of Lent is the Sunday of Orthodoxy. Now, why is it the Sunday of Orthodoxy? We are commemorating today the end of the iconoclastic controversy. The iconoclastic controversy was a period of history in the Byzantine Empire where icons, the veneration of icons, what we're known for in the East, was prohibited by the church and the state. And there are different bad actors throughout, throughout that, I think it's like 150 years on and off. It ends in the middle of the 9th century. And there are lots of people involved in defense of the icons and in their restoration. And one of the, probably the main protagonist in the restoration of the iconoclastic controversy is Empress Theodora, Saint Empress Theodora. So let's talk about her life. She was, I believe she was a Armenian uh, or of Armenian descent. And her parents were well-to-do people in the Constantinopolitan scene. I believe her father was a military general. And it's said that she was beautiful, that she was intelligent, and, and she was very pious, and so naturally she was devoted a devoted um, venerator of icons, or something that we call an iconophile. People who hate icons are iconoclasts, and so if you love icons, you're an iconophile. And... In this story, it's kind of interesting how she even comes into the story. And this is something that I'm going to I'm going to quote and then I'm going to bring back later on. So the emperor at the time was Emperor Theophilus. And Emperor Theophilus was an iconoclast. He's, his policy was against the icons and he had people tortured and killed and exiled for their stance for 
iconographic veneration. However, what you'll see is there's all these different characters within the Byzantine hierarchy who secretly were iconophiles. And in any little way, they would use their influence to help out those who were in the streets in defense of icons. The people that we consider confessors of the faith or martyrs, they were trying to help them out in little secret ways. And we're going to see how that works. One of the iconophiles that were incognito, if you will, was the emperor's mother, Euphrosina. And it came to a time where Theophilus, the emperor, her son, needed a wife. And so in the narrative of this story, it's Euphrosina who goes out and she collects all these women throughout the empire. And so now I'm going to read this little short story of how Emperor Theophilus chooses Empress Theodora. Having sent out into all the themes, Euphrosina summoned beautiful girls so that her son, Theophilus, might marry. Escorting them into the palace to the triclium called the Pearl, she gave Theophilus a golden apple and said, Give this to whichever one you like. Among the girls of noble birth was an extremely beautiful girl named Cassia. Seeing her and ad- admiring her uh, admiring her greatly for her beauty, Theophilus said, Yet through a woman, evils came to man. She, though modestly, replied, But through a woman, better things began. He, wounded in his heart by her reply, passed her by and gave the apple to Theodora, a Paphlagonian girl. So the first thing that sticks out to me is Oh my goodness, how, what's the word, just fragile and affected Theophilus is for for hearing the response from this girl Cassia. Like, what kind of a little mamby-pamby person do you have to be? That, uh, that someone answers rightly that, you know, through the Virgin Mary, better things came. And, and then he took, took offense to that. Second, I'd like to point out that there are two people here who are iconophiles. Well, three people. There's Euphrosina, the, the mother. There's Cassia. Cassia is actually, what I found out, is actually a, a great saint. She becomes an amazing saint who um, was a hymnographer and a poet. And we venerate her sometime in September. And I didn't get too much into researching her life because I was doing other things for for this episode. But she seems to be a really interesting individual. Um, And I guess what happens is he passes her over because he's so offended by her response. The little, little twerp, Theophilus. And then he chooses Theodora. And it makes you wonder, was Euphrosina, his mother cherry-picking all these iconophile girls throughout the empire to place them as empress. Because as we see, the, the two other girls that we see here, they're clearly iconophiles. And so, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And what you're going to see, if you ever look into the greater history of the iconoclastic controversy, there, there, there are men who do defend the veneration of icons, 
but women take a great role as well. There's um, first thing that comes out to mind is uh, the Empress Irene. Um, I think I believe she was involved in ending the first wave of the iconoclastic uh, controversy, though uh, you know she's not a saint for plucking out her son's eyeballs. Anyways, let's move on. So Theodora and Theophilus get married. And Euphrosina's like, my work is done, I'm becoming a nun. You know, she's going to go live the life of prayer and piety and end her life in a, you know, nice, humble monastery. So Theodora ends up having a big brood of children. I think she has about five or six. And she sends them to her mother-in-law's convent, where they go, and they go to visit Grandma, Grandma Euphrosina. And when they go... Grandmother Euphrosina, she takes out this little box. She takes out the box and she takes out the icons and she teaches the children to kiss the icons, calling them their little dolls. Now, this is the first part where we get the we get the notion of code and code words. And Theodora will continue to use this expression, calling icons her little dolls, as a means of concealing the fact that she is venerating icons. Anyways, the children return from this visit with the Grandma Euphrosina, and their father asks them what they did. Now, the older children, they understand that, you know, little dolls is code for icons, and we're not to tell Dad about the icons. But the little, younger, innocent children... And they're like, oh, we took out these things, um, these dolls, and we kissed them. And um, we, we prayed with them and all this stuff. Theophilus full well knows what this is. And he goes into a rage. And he forbids the children from ever visiting their grandmother ever again. So now there's another episode of the iconographic drama in the life of St. Theodora. There's a situation where in which there is a court jester. He goes by the name of Dendrus. And Dendrus, he walks into Theodora's room. Theodora has icons hidden in her room. And at this moment, she's looking with her attendants into the mirror, kissing the icons. And Dendrus looks at her and says, Theodora, what are you doing? Empress, what are you doing um, over there? And she looks to him and she's like, oh, I'm, I'm just playing with my dolls. Aren't they, aren't they lovely? Now, Dendris, being a little jerk, goes to the emperor. From that point on, we see uh, there's, this, there's this moment that where whenever the, whenever the emperor got drunk, he would question Dendris, the little court gesture about... about uh, the icon worship, and the only thing that Dendrus would do was he would put his hand over his mouth and shake his head no and put his hand over his behind, meaning that the Empress would whip him, that he had been whipped um, for having ran to the Emperor and telling him about her icon worship. Now, you're likely thinking, if this woman's a saint, why do we see her lying and why do we see her whipping people? Now, this inspired quite a discussion between myself and Sarah. 
Um, we had a little debate. It was not heated. It was good. It was, uh, we didn't uh, go over the bounds of civil discourse. And so we can pat ourselves on the back for that. Anyways, there was still a debate between us because we both saw this in two different lights. And to maybe sum up these two sides of the argument was basically that she did not see these two things, these in incidences, as being, you know, a part of the landscape of sainthood, uh, where I saw them as not detracting from sainthood at all. Anyways, I could be wrong. She could be wrong. Either of us could be right. It's just kind of like it doesn't really matter because what, well, what her position, her position is pretty good. She was saying that, you know, we're never done, you know, in the process of being made a saint. We still make mistakes, and goodness, Lord knows that's me. Um, personally, when I looked at it, I, I immediately wanted to defend Theodora. And so what I was saying was, and I think this holds, you know, Thomas Aquinas says when it comes to lying, it's permissible to lie when you're trying to save someone's life. When you're trying to save a life, that's when you can lie. When the Soviets come to your door and you've got a bunch of religious in the basement, you can very much say, nope, no one's here. See you, see you later. Um, and that, that, that would be Aquinas's position. And I think that would be my position too. You know, you can totally lie if someone's going to murder someone if you tell them the truth. And with Theodora, you know, having a contrary position to the, how would you say, the policy of the empire, she was very much in danger that uh, Theophilus had every right, according to his, uh, to his rights as, as emperor, to have her executed for the veneration of icons. Now you're saying, sure, Bill, you can massage that one. But how do you defend Empress Theodora having this, uh, what, Dendrus? This guy Dendrus whipped. Well, I would say that being the empress, she wasn't in an equal relationship to someone else. Like, it would totally be sinful for me if someone did me wrong. You know, say they, they stole my Pokemon cards. It would be totally wrong for me to go and, you know, whip them or punish them in, you know, in a violent act. But for Empress Theodora, she is, as Empress, the embodiment of the state. In a sense, you can kind of see that Dendrus, by ratting out Empress Theodora to Emperor Theophilus, it's kind of like treason. Especially because it's against, it's, well, it's treason against God for sure, but also treason against the state because he's, you know, trying to put the Empress in danger, essentially. Now, that's, my, that's my, my rationale about it. You can totally believe that what she did in those situations were not, you know, was missing the mark. Uh, or you can totally believe what I said, um, and that'd be cool too. Anyways, what we eventually see, we see the question of the iconoclastic controversy not really come up explicitly between the emperor and empress again, from that point on, I think that the emperor kind of just decided to turn a blind eye to his own family. 
However, there were other people within Constantinople who were helped out because of Theodora's kind of direct authority. There was a particular icon writer who was arrested and his hands were branded. His name was Lazarus. And uh, through the influence of Empress Theodora, he was let out. And so she was kind of maneuvering behind the scenes in a more subtle way after that. What eventually happens is uh, Theophilus becomes sick and he's close to death. And he has this terrifying vision of hell and the punishment that he would receive from, from, his, from his iconoclastic policies. And there on his deathbed, Empress Theodora, she brings out an icon out of her, I guess, out of her sleeve. That's how I like to picture it. And, he pre- and she presents it to him. It's an icon of the mother of God, I believe. And Emperor Theophilus lifts up, kisses the icon, professes the, the Orthodox faith, and then dies. And in the wake of his death, it is his son, Michael III, who is next in line to be emperor. Now, he was too young at the time, so Empress Theodora becomes the uh, becomes the queen regent, essentially. What she does with her influence is she deposes the patriarch of Constantinople. I think it was John the Grammarian. He was an iconoclast. And she places a man by the name of the- uh, Methodius on the patriarchal throne. They convene a local synod that affirms the Seventh Ecumenical Council, a council that happened in... I think it must have been like maybe 80 years prior that affirmed that was an actual ecumenical council that affirmed um, iconographic veneration. And the empire was just kind of turning a blind eye to that council since then. So they didn't need to have another ecumenical council to state what the last ecumenical council already said. They just needed to have a local synod in order to affirm it. The last ecumenical council that in, I believe it was the 780s, affirmed the veneration of icons. And now, with this local synod being accomplished by St. Theodora and by the Patriarch of Constantinople, on March the 11th, 843, it was the first weekend, the first Sunday of Great Lent, and on this day, they had a procession of icons. So this is where our tradition comes from, because typically at Divine Liturgy, at, at the beginning of the Divine Liturgy, we have a little procession of icons still, and continues from this day. Now, in terms of her life, after her son, Michael III, became of age and was prepared to be the emperor on his own, she retired from imperial life and became a nun, and she spent out the rest of her days in prayer and in fasting, and in the uh, manuscript writing. She, we still have a copy of the Gospels that was written by St. Theodora. After her death, it was found that she was incorrupt, and her relics are currently in a village called Kirkira in Greece, where every year, for the procession of the icons at the first Sunday of Great Lent, they carry her relics with the icons into the church. That's pretty cool. So what I would like to do next is I want to talk to Sarah because Sarah has been involved in learning 
to make icons over the past few years. She has since then made, I think, four icons. She's on her fifth right now. And she always has these really cool anecdotes over the past few years, things that she's learned and the techniques and uh, just different experiences. And so I want to have an experience-based conversation about what it's like to write icons. The wonders of cough drops. I wonder if I should have one right now. (laughs) I'm just spitting this one. I want it. Uh, Okay, no. Um, (laughs) So, first things first, though. Okay. Theophilus, Theophilus. I don't know. So, here's the thing. I (laughs) I think I was employing the rules of how I say the name Theodora. Because we don't say Theodora. No, that's right. That's and correct. so I was looking at his name and I was I was saying Theophilus, Theodora, Theophilus. Yeah. But you were saying Theophilus, which is a much more which is a name I I recognize. Yeah. I don't recognize Theophilus. Okay. Yeah. So I think like it's really weird how we're emphasizing different things and different, different names. Syllables, basically. Different syllables. Yeah. I don't know where I got that from, though, but I just, I saw it. But it makes like, sense at the same time. So I feel like an idiot, but I, <laughs> but I also don't feel like an idiot. Whatever. Because I mean, there is a certain logic behind it. Anyways. If anybody out there is a Greek scholar, ancient mm. Greek scholar, do please email yeah, us. Let we us would know. like to know how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I feel like the more of those like correct pronunciations of certain Greek names or whatever that go in your like memory bank, then the more you can like pronounce them better and better going forward sure yeah you know as as you absorb that like mm-hmm. greek information or whatever anyway mm. anyways i, I could to... be wrong i could be very wrong we could both be wrong yeah <laughs> it could be to heliophilus <laughs> no it's stupid anyways i wanted to talk about yes. icons specifically because yes, yes St. Theodora is attributed to this day. I think her feast day is actually February 11th, right? Yes. February 11th. And we still commemorate her today. I think they put some of these saints, they sprinkle them in, around, in and around Great Lent because Mm -hmm. there are the Sundays that kind of are associated with them. Yeah. With some of the time. That's just my guess. That's my working theory. Well, I think her feast day might fall on a weekday a lot of the time. So then if you have this Sunday, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? You have this Sunday, you can <clears throat> yeah, dig in Anyways. a more. But today is also, the Sunday of Orthodoxy, the Triumph of Orthodoxy is also about just icons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the truth of the faith. Yes. And so you have been writing these icons for a few years, and I just wanted, because mm-hmm. you're always coming home. You're always, <laughs> you know, showing your updates on some of your icons and, you know, different things that's going on with you with icons. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. in the interests of vulnerability <laughs> I thought yeah <clears throat> let Sarah take the sure take the reins on this yeah. and you were just telling me the story because we yeah. were rehearsing this <laughs> well because I was like I don't know I feel like I could say all the things and then narrowing it down gets hard but I think I've figured it out you figured out the thing that you wanted to <clears throat> say yeah I think so yeah well essentially it's kind of two things so So basically, I just wanted to share a little bit about the experience of learning to write icons and my relationship with icons and the saints as a result of learning to write icons. So over the time that I've been learning, it's been about um, 
three and a half years now, maybe four. You're just starting. Yeah, I'm just getting started. I'm a baby iconographer. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have a really amazing set of teachers. And I feel like the one in particular just has a lot of context and just real spiritual depth in how she teaches. Um, And then I've done some reading on my own. Anyway, so what I find is as I'm getting into iconography as like a consistent part of my prayer life, spiritual life, my interior life... um, there's actually kind of like two layers that start to happen. So one of them is that like whatever you're doing practically in the icon, like literally whatever the work is, every stage in writing an icon has a deep spiritual significance, a thing you're supposed to be meditating on. But then there's also like whatever it interacts with that's going on for you spiritually as well. And these things kind of come up to contact with each other in really cool ways. So there's that, and I have a little bit to share about that. But then the second is that you are writing an icon of a particular saint or holy person, and you are meditating and praying and working through, we believe that icons are windows into heaven. We're, de- we're depicting, we're participating in creating a representation of that person as they are glorified in heaven a window into seeing them as they are in heaven and so you actually are really inviting that person into your life i found in my experience and so their particular personality or charism or spiritual like gifts and graces that they want to bless you with can become really apparent sometimes sometimes not until later But, um, so there's two layers, right? Like what you're doing brings stuff up spiritually and literally like with the paintbrush, what it, what's going on this week. And then second of all, like, who are you inviting into your life for that time? So an example of my experience with the practical work and the meditation of what you're doing, bring up. So every stage in an icon and writing an icon has something that you're meditating on. So Um, The example that I thought I'd share is when we're doing something which is called the Roskrish. So at this point in an icon, your board's been prepared, whether you've done it yourself or had someone do it for you, depends. And um, you've put the drawing onto the board and you've um, put the clay on the halo and you've gilded the halo. And so now you're at the point where you're beginning to work with the egg tempera paint. And so our paints are all made from egg um, with a bit of like vinegar or wine and water. And then we mix in and grind in like powdered pigments. And a lot of them are minerals or plant, like powdered, like indigo is one that's made from a plant. And you mix them in and you're using sometimes multiple pigments to get a certain color. And then you're starting to use that mix on your board. And so in the Roskrish stage is when you kind of have like your your line drawing of your saint or your angel on the board and you're filling in the spaces. But the technique is very different from painting. So what you're doing is you have a good amount of water in your egg and ground pigment mix, in your egg tempera mix, and you are kind of creating a little puddle. So like If we're doing the face, the face and the hair, the base color, it's kind of like an underpainting in painting. 
And the base color um, is kind of the color you start with. From this point forward, we're actually working from dark to light, which is totally a spiritual thing, as well as literally how you're working with your paint. <clears throat> like the actual colors are dark colors turning to light. Yeah, so we're starting with like a darker base color. And then we're adding highlights on top. And it's mirroring, mirroring like creation. Yeah, it's, yeah, and so the whole thing is mirroring creation. It's also mirroring the process that you're meant to be going through as the iconographer. And we're bringing, you're kind of bringing out a clearer picture of this saint as you move forward. And so we're meditating on how God brings us from dark to light. <clears throat> we're meditating on a bunch of things. But in order to get this Roscrush base layer, there's a certain technique where you're actually kind of just creating a puddle. Um, I've read one, one place where it's called um, Le Petit Lac, so the little lake. You're kind of using the surface tension to just fill that space with like a puddle of that color and then you let it dry and it kind of settles down. So if you're doing it properly, you actually aren't creating brush strokes or like putting the paint where you want it to be. You're letting it kind of puddle. And so all of those little ground powdered pigments, um, my teacher always says like, if you, if you do it properly, you're kind of letting them fall where they will. And so you'll have this cool effect where sometimes a little patch is like redder rather than blue in the purple, say, or a little patch has a little more all of a sudden, but it creates this really cool mottled effect. But what we're supposed to be meditating on in the theocosm, the universe, the creation, um, at this point is actually chaos. So we're starting with chaos and we're moving towards, um, earthly material order and then heavenly order and and things above and beyond us at, towards the end and so if people are doing this right it, you see people in class like it's funny because you have new people come in and you see them go through the stages you've been through and it's like a real struggle especially if you've painted before because it's so different than the technique you use a paintbrush for otherwise but there's also a process of needing to let go, let go of control of where the color lands and like how it lands and how it looks and where your brush puts it. And it's more like just placing it there and like accepting what happens. And so it's really beautiful every time I get to that stage in an icon because I'm always meditating on like, what in my life am I trying to just like claw control back for? And God's trying to sometimes do something that's really beautiful. And if you do it right in the icon, in the paint, it's so beautiful. And it creates this really dynamic base that brings life to your icon as you proceed. The other part of this is that your base colors are often completely counterintuitive to what you think that that part of the garment or the face or whatever is like what color it's supposed to be at the end. For example, our flesh is always a color called Sankir, which is like an, a dark kind of olivey green. And the first time you write an icon and <laughs> at least in the technique my teacher teaches, she mixes you up your color and says, okay, this goes on anywhere where there would be flesh and or hair. 
you're thinking about the color, the flesh color you want to end up with. And people are always like, wait, what? And what color is she giving him? Green. Like yeah. a, like an army green. Yeah. And you're like, how? Like, how though? And she always goes, just, just, you'll see, you'll see, you know? And I think sometimes she has a lot of fun with it, but, <laughs> um, but it requires a certain kind of almost blind trust out of you, especially as the new student who's never seen it unfold. But like, no matter what, every time it's always a little bit like, okay, this it's always so weird how this works. But then because there's so many layers that go on top and so many things going on by the end of the icon, you get this beautiful, deep, rich life to like a face or a hand. And there's like this underneath color and there's an interaction between that and the other things. I just thought, you know, if I were to claw at my face right now and to rip <laughs> off my... Would there be olive would, green? Would, would there be olive green underneath it? But it's also like, like maybe. Er we're earthly, right? We're earthly creatures. We are yeah. made from the earth, literally in Genesis, like mm -hmm. Adam was created from the earth. And and that comes into play with the clay of it, which is a different stage, but it, it it's reminding us of our, like, of our earthly nature. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, so that's, a, I feel like that was kind of a long explanation, but no, that was that's one. how the microcosm of like, sometimes how you're literally working. And there's a lot of things, like a lot of it takes patience. We're supposed to contemplate and pray as much as we work. So the amount of time you're working on an icon that is actually brushed to icon should be, um, Hopefully, and I haven't reached this in the class, it's kind of hard, but um, should be you should be sitting and praying and looking at it and like asking it what it wants for lack. Of, like that sounds so flaky, but it's a saint, mm. you know, so it's not. Mm -hmm. But like and and asking what's needed and asking yourself and stepping away and coming back and looking at it. And these are all like metaphors for the spiritual life for like some issue you're going through, like stepping away, leaving it for a day, <laughs> coming back to pray with it, you know. So, yeah, so there's a there's a way in which the microcosm of like what you're actually literally working on in the little details is so spiritually fruitful if if you have like the the context and the if you have a teacher that's like going through that mm. um, or if you've read about it and you can mm -hmm. enter into that. So, but then the other factor, sorry, the second thing that I wanted to talk about is how um, an iconographer is a good hagiographer and the word hagios means holy. So it, not only is it like the study of saints, but a study of holiness. And you're, when you're writing an icon, I did not realize this for my first couple icons, but in a very unique way, you are inviting a certain person into your spiritual life in a really profound and intense kind of way. In my experience, intense, I guess maybe not everybody, but it's kind of like praying a novena, but it's like so much longer and more, there's more time to go deep. Um, so I had an experience where, um, we always start with the guardian angel in our class and I had finished mine and I kind of had decided that I was going to practice obedience and let my instructor just like completely choose for me, you know, and I'm not sure that I would have had the option yet because I was so new anyway, but she chose St. Michael the Archangel for my second icon since I had already done an angel. So there were certain things that I kind of had under my 
under my belt. And what ended up happening was really interesting is that I started that icon on the feast of the synaxis of the archangels. So essentially St. Michael's feast day. And so I kind of had this sense that he was presenting himself in a particular way into my life. Um, and what I found was that St. Michael, just like some other saints, has a very particular charism and working way of working, at least in my life anyway. And I would venture to guess that other people who've done this icon may have experienced something similar. If that's you and you have a story about it, I would love to hear. But basically what happened was that was in the fall sometime and some, I didn't make the connection right away, but some real intense stuff started to coming up just in my prayer time, in my marriage, in my personal growth and reflection where a lot of my like really intense flaws started coming up and getting like stirred up by circumstances and whatever. And I realized that not only did those flaws exist, but that there were major flaws in how I thought about and prayed with my flaws, if that makes sense. And a lot of it came back to pride for me at the time. And like, I don't know, just struggling with the fact that I had like real and intense flaws at all. And then that kind of getting in the way of actually just dealing with what the flaw was. And it just became, it was really intense and really hard, but also really good and fruitful. Um, I told this story to some friends one time and then they were like, I'm terrified to write an icon now. And it's like, oh no, 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 that's not the intended effect. But I feel like in my experience, St. Michael just kind of rolls up his sleeves and gets crap done. And like, it's like, mm. all right, you called like, yeah. let's just get this show on a, the road. You know, like when you give something to Mary or like even St. Joseph, I feel like they're a lot gentle, gentler and like more parental. And he's almost like, just like this holy warrior mercenary. That's like, mm -hmm. where's the evil? Let me at it. Mm -hmm. Let's get it. Let's get it out of here. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of in retrospect, I realized that it was him. Like, cause I also like pick a prayer. Um, I've started to make this, I'm not always super faithful at it. So whatever, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> but I usually like, it was easy with St. Michael. Cause you have that. I grew up Roman Catholic and I have that St. Michael prayer memorized. Yep. So I added that to my morning prayer routine daily or whenever I remembered during the time that I was writing that icon. So maybe I was praying to him a lot more because I had it memorized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's why he's so active. Yeah. Um, and so you're kind of like, you're asking them. So yeah, it was just really interesting because it was really intense, so good, and but really efficacious given the amount of time that actually had elapsed because it was like one school year. And then summer came around and the end of icon class, we break for the summer. And I'd asked my instructor if she could give me one to work on on my own. And she has like the book with everything in it. And she gave me St. Raphael since, again, I was on an angel on a roll with these angels. And St. Raphael is the healer. He's the one that travels with you um, and guides and kind of facilitates things happening like if you read the book the story of uh, like Tobit and Sarah and Tobias 
he's the facilitator of like new life and and he also actually helps exercise evil in that story as well like there's a demon that he he helps the circumstances go but it's more about like healing um and healing from trauma and healing anyway so um it was really interesting because when I kind of put St. Michael down for a bit, like I let him have summer break or whatever because of class, I wanted to um, pick something different up. And so I started St. Raphael and it was interesting because things just completely like mellowed down for a bit. And not in the sense that stuff wasn't happening, but it was almost like everything got stirred up. And then it was like St. Raphael's job to be like, okay, like now let's sort Mm. through it. And it was, he's a bit gentler, but like he, he, he's not afraid to make you look at hard stuff too. In my, in my under, like experience. It sounds like he has like a meditative quality. Yeah. And it was like a more quieter, not that St. Michael was loud per se, but like, it was just like, almost like a tornado but I don't want to keep saying these things that sound negative because it's like awe-inspiring what he's done you could say that it's very clear yeah and it's and decisive yeah and like there's no um there's no turning back or something it's like you called me I'm here we're doing it yeah like interesting take a big breath (laughs) you know Hmm. um you'll get through it it will be good it'll be amazing at the other end but like, let's, let's go, you know? And so that's kind of your experience with both with the process of doing icons and meeting with particular saints. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then like, it was, yeah, the summer was chill. And then when I picked up St. Michael again, this fall, it was like, he, he's like, Hey, Hmm. I'm back. Nice. Only this time I was like mentally prepared. You're for mentally anything. prepared from the comeback. Yeah, and it's funny because now I'm almost done. I have a couple weeks left, and I think it looks like we'll be probably I'll be able to get that icon finished um, in that time. And I'm kind of sad now. Mm. <laughs> like I'm like I'm gonna have to write this icon again or ask him. Mm. You know, get to the point at some point where I'm like ready for that vibe again, which nice. will be a while. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like I'm being long winded, but. Yeah, and my experience with every icon that I've written has been, like, there's been something profound kind of associated with my relationship with that saint. So, um, I don't know if that's everyone's experience, but I've been graced Mm. in my walk with iconography thus far. Um, So, I mean, yeah, definitely be forewarned. Like, I wouldn't take St. Michael lightly. I wouldn't probably have anyway, but now I have, like, more awe for him. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. So... Interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah. There is another thing that I wanted to talk about. I didn't give you any time to prepare for this. Okay, I'll do And it's going back to the story. Put me on the spot. Because <laughs> the Sunday of Orthodoxy, it's not just about icons, but it's about just mm-hmm. the truth of the faith in general. Yes. And and accepting it. And there is something about Theophilus's uh, engagements mm-hmm. with all of those women. Yes. In in when he approached Cassia that to me shows us the psychology mm-hmm. of when we reject what is true and beautiful. Okay. Because I think that you see you you have this person mm-hmm. who's discerning who he wants to to be with. 
Yeah. And he comes to someone who is what who, what he considers the most beautiful woman in the room mm-hmm. was was this woman Cassia. Mm-hmm. And she presents him not just something that is beautiful, but something that is true. And she corrects mm-hmm. him and says that the Virgin Mary brought something greater than Eve did. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? What does it say for him? It says that he was wounded in the heart. <laughs> I know. I think a lot of the time when we shirk from the things of tradition, the things of truth, it's not because we have a really great argument against it. Mm-hmm. It's because of something inside. Yeah. Or some wound that we have from something previous. I right. Think. And so I've heard a lot of talk just in my past about how we not, how we shouldn't offend people with the faith. <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, be sure you don't, that you, you don't present things this way and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And, and it always kind of um, trying to appeal to the wider world. Mm-hmm. So that they're not wounded in the heart yeah. by us. Mm-hmm. But really, and I'll get your take on this as well. Mm-hmm. For me, I think Cassia just presents someone who undermines that thesis altogether. Mm-hmm. That no, we just humbly, it said that she, she did it humbly, presents the faith to him. Yeah. The truth of the faith. Uh, and it's really up to him whether he's offended by it or not. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've just been, I've been dwelling on that recently because, mm-hmm. you know, we are called to, to evangelize mm-hmm. and to present the faith to people. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think that we need to worry about upsetting the, our current social <laughs> mores. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I would agree with a lot of it. Um, it's really interesting that you bring that up because part of my journey with St. Michael was actually just working through how offended I was that I had these flaws Mm. and that this was the first thing that was getting in my way and making any headway or allowing the Holy Spirit to really inspire and work with what those flaws were and maybe make an improvement. Yeah. And it was like one of the things that was big in the first stint with St. Michael so it's just interesting that we we're having the same conversation at the same time. Oh, that's but really cool. Yeah, is that I, I was so offended by seeing these flaws just like in their stark truth um, that like some of my sin came from like es- trying to escape the truth of that because I couldn't deal or didn't want to deal. Mm. And that it doesn't even allow you to get somewhere where you can start getting better at the things you suck at or <laughs> anyway. But yeah, I do think that there's something to that because all the great martyrs were people that mm. like a lot of them were people that offended. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. I don't know. I think that for like, for me looking at our cur- current context, something that is analogous to it is the whole pro-life debate. Yes. When you think about it, it's kind of like Cassia mm-hmm. because what is the pro-life debate, but saying that, this thing inside you is beautiful and it is, it is a gift. And it's a person. It's a person. <laughs> and it's a person. Yes. That's the truth of the matter is yeah. that it's a person. And that is, and the fact that a baby is a person is the thing that wounds our hearts today. Mm-hmm. I don't think that we need to worry at all what people think mm-hmm. based, like based on that metric. Yeah. It's like, 
we just need to be who we are. Mm-hmm. When I think there's a difference between um, also like being a jerk. Being obtuse, and, sir. Well, or being sure. a jerk like purposely on purpose to try and make a point. Right. And Because I get the sense that the like tone of voice that Cassie's delivery is, is like... Well, something great began with a woman as well. Like, not yeah, yeah, yeah. know it all but just, like, matter of fact. Yeah. Like, I don't picture her, like, doing the triangle snap and being yeah. like, something perfect began with a woman, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, and so there is a difference. And I do think we're called not to be jerks. <laughs> For sure. Also that we do not really matter all that much. <laughs> yeah, there's that. That's, that that's too. also a thing. Like, I, like, whenever I hear someone who's talking about, you know, this this kind of this fear of offending everybody with yeah. the content of the faith, yeah, it's there's always this misunderstanding that everything relies on them, yeah, in order to convince someone. But we have to understand that God is the primary evangelist mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well. Okay. So this is my other thought about. Um, Theophilus. Oh, Theophilus. 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 This is the debate, the raging debate that will continue. No, it's... Um, Is, in my experience, when people are offended by something... Yeah. It means they're grappling with it. And sometimes they grapple with it for decades. And then, as in his case, on their deathbed, they're like, oh, crap, man. Give me that icon. I think the gospel is an, I think we're, the gospel is something that is inherently offensive. And I think even the time that we're in right now, mm-hmm. you know, the great fast, it is an, it's a self-effacing yeah. season. And Christianity will always be about offending our very selves. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of pride to be had yeah. in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. But I think when we when we seek out to um, to be more humble, we understand yeah. that all of the content of the faith, the saints, the gospel, yeah. um, icons, yeah. that a lot of the things that happens is that what what you were saying, it's meant to undermine ourselves. Yeah. Well, and I all yeah, and I also think that if there if there isn't enough there to offend someone, there isn't enough fuel for like a reckoning that's actually going to bring them back. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So that's where I was going with the Theophilus thing. Sorry, I got off track a little bit. No, it's okay. um, He was offended. I think my theory, and this is like, I could be full of crap. I don't know. I'll find out in heaven. We can check in about this, all of us together, because hopefully we'll all be there. I think he had some issue with Mary, because when they talk about the the specific icon the kids were venerating at Mm. their grandmother's place, the specific icon that Theodora had that the jester saw her venerating, it's all the mother of God. Mm. And I I have a theory that he had some sort of, that he actually had a reckoning in his relationship with her. That's interesting. I like that a lot. That's my theory. Because mm. you can also sense like he's got like issues with women because he... Yeah, totally. It just like that story about St. Cassia. It's like, yeah, okay, I got this guy <laughs> dialed. Yeah. And this is me in my flawedness and maybe I'm really proud and think I just can peg people real quick. That could be like not actually true. But um, I don't know. I just like my spidey senses go to like... Interesting. He's got an Our Lady problem. That's and cool. And he resolved it, I think... Yeah, at the end of By his life, he did. By the accounts, at the end of his life. 
Um, but yeah, I wonder if that reckoning hadn't been there or if the reckonings repeatedly, because obviously he had repeated reckonings with her if he's an iconoclast, you know? Totally. Um, if that hadn't ha- happened repeatedly, he wouldn't have had to grapple with it. Like, I think sometimes when we don't offend people, we do them an injustice in um, allowing a situation where they actually don't have to think it through and examine. Oh, totally. You know, and so it's like, it's hard because you're that person they're coming up against Mm. and you don't get to see the results half the time. But that's a humility that I think we need to have to be unpopular, but also to be like out of love for uh, others. Mm. To allow them enough encounter with truth that they have to grapple, mm-hmm. that they have to reckon. And it may not happen till their deathbed. Mm-hmm. God willing, a lot sooner mm-hmm. would be ideal. But yeah, I wonder about that. Just from a, even a psychological perspective, it's like, do you, if it's not a blip on your radar. That's a great place to end. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I think that's, well, re- that's, the, that's the point. That's <laughs> yeah. the point that we need to end at. So consider it a service to your brothers and sisters. Totally. You never even. know what's going to happen. You don't know someone's... Yeah. I say all of this not being very good at being... Oh, yeah. Offensive. You're hearing people, it from the worst. The worst people pleaser of all time. Both of us. Yeah. No, well, I'm not I don't a know people that, pleaser. No, you're not. No, but the worst <laughs> type of people. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those are our thoughts. Have a... Reverent Lent. Blessed Lent. Pious Lent. (laughs) Yes.